You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. As I have continued to do week after week after week, I would like to invite you to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew, where we are now turning our attention to Matthew chapter 17, looking at verses 14 through 27. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27. And as you make your way over there, just as a reminder, uh, in case you haven't heard, uh, Harvest Plains Church will be relocating to Mapleton in the near future, and uh, we'll start building out a space uh, connected to Muddy Boots Coffee and Merchant Bank. There's a building over there in Mapleton. Uh, if you happen to want to just glance at that space as you drive through Mapleton, perhaps on your way back to Fargo, uh, feel free to do so. And the building is open, so you can even walk in and take a look at the space. But uh, so thankful for how the Lord has opened up a new place for us to gather at a place to call home where we can hang our hat uh, all week long. Well, that said, uh, feel free to follow along with me as I read our text for us, beginning in verse 14. And if you didn't happen to bring a copy of God's Word, the verses will also be up there on the screen for you to follow along with, too. Beginning in verse 14, Matthew writes, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed when they came to Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, visit with just about any person that's gone on a short-term mission trip or experienced a week at Bible camp or perhaps a season at Christian college or something along those lines And one thing they'd be able to describe to you is the incredible crash that often accompanies a return to life as normal. Some of you know very well what I'm talking about. Of course, I'm talking about that moment when you come down from a spiritual high, from a spiritual mountain peak experience, where perhaps you've been immersed in a Christian environment where you've made friends that you've never had more in common with. Where daily you've enjoyed deep, refreshing spiritual conversations, perhaps even sharing things about your life that you've never shared with anyone. Additionally, there was a collective sense of purpose if you were with a group of people, but maybe you were by yourself. Still, you felt like you were in the heart of God's mission. And everybody seemed to be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of following Christ. And best of all, there was perhaps the absence of any serious conflict, maybe some small conflicts. But even then, people treated each other with respect, with dignity. 
with honor. But then you come back home and it doesn't take long until everything hits you like a ton of bricks, right? Parents are back to being parents. This is, of course, if you're younger, giving out chores and meddling in your life, wanting to know what you're doing and who you're with. Siblings are back to being siblings, messing up your bedroom, taking your things. Kids are back to being kids, whining, complaining, needing this, needing that. And of course, there's just the stress of everything else, right? Peers, work, assignments, deadlines. And unfortunately, in light of everything you've just experienced, everything really seems so mundane, so insignificant, so unspiritual. And then you're quickly reminded about the fallen world that you live in, right? Well, believe it or not, there's actually a section of scripture, I think, that speaks to this experience pretty well. And we happen to be looking at it today as we gaze at Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27. Now, of course, to appreciate what we're looking at today, just perhaps a quick reminder about where we were last week. Uh, keep in mind what happened then. We notice how three disciples, Peter, James, and John, experienced something that was incredibly profound. Remember what happened. They go up on a mountain with Jesus. And on this mountain, they see Jesus transfigured before them. They see his face shine like the sun. They see his clothes sparkle with dazzling beauty. They see heavenly figures appear. Elijah and Moses, they see the glory of the Lord appear in a cloud. They even hear the voice of God speak, saying, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the whole event, of course, leaves them face down on the ground with holy, awesome terror. An overwhelming experience for sure. But what happens when it's over? We're told that they descend the mountain. And that's what we're looking at today. Scholars agree that this has to do with much more than geography. It also expresses a descent from a spiritual high. It was, in a sense, if you want to think about it this way, the greatest Christian retreat to have ever taken place. The greatest Christian summit But as the disciples quickly discover, life is not lived on the summit of the mountain, but at its its base as they walk through the valley. There are profound things for us in today's text, and I'm going to try my best to bring it all together. Perhaps you noticed as we read through our passage, there's a lot of different things going on. But so much for us to learn from and glean that we would be fruitful and effective disciples that live life in the valley, caring for those around us. So many profound things. Keep in mind how humbling of a moment this would have been for the disciples. Again, they've just experienced the ultimate. They probably felt like they could take on anything after this. They probably even thought to themselves, like, man, if if you knew what we knew, they would have felt enlightened. Yet it doesn't take long until there is a serious reality check for the disciples. And in line with that reality check, I want to give our attention today as we notice three discoveries that the disciples make as they return to life as normal. If you're a note taker, that's our outline. Three discoveries that the disciples make when they return to life as normal. So what are these discoveries What is it that they quickly learned when they descended the mountain? Well, first, they discover this. They discover the poverty of their faith. They discover the poverty of their faith. So the disciples come down the mountain, and then what happens? Well, we're told that Jesus and the disciples are quickly met by a concerned father whose son is in a terrible condition. The father explains his son's situation like this. He says that his son... And Luke actually records that this was his only child. He's having seizures. 
And the seizures are also leading to other problems, too. Look at verse 14. We read, For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Luke 9, verse 39, describes further the situation like this. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So this man's son is experiencing seizures, but not just any normal type of seizure. This is a demonically induced seizures, which many seizures are not. And the seizures are constantly putting his son's life in danger, sometimes causing him to get burned and other times nearly causing him to drown. And I think we can assume the father's done all that he can to prevent these dangers, but no protective measures seem to help. So every single day, all this father can do is worry and wonder when the next moment is going to strike when his son is in harm's way again. We're talking about a father who is on high alert all the time. There are families in our church like this. Perhaps you're a family like this or a parent like this. The behaviors of your children are sporadic, completely unpredictable for various reasons. That's where this man lives. But then one day he receives hope. Why? Because he's heard that there's a man named Jesus who happens to have some other men around him, some 12 disciples, and they are going around from place to place, and everywhere they go, they can heal every illness and every disease. They can effectively eliminate and eradicate all illness within a region. But upon hearing this, of course, then what does the man do? Well, excitedly, he searches for these men, and by God's grace, he happens to find nine of them. Okay, so the text doesn't actually say nine of them. But as we know from the passage, he comes to the disciples who didn't accompany Jesus. Peter, James, and John, three of the disciples, went up the mountain. That would, simple math, leave us with nine of them, right? Yet to his surprise, what does he discover? Sadly, these men can't help him. They can't actually do the very thing that he hoped they would. Thankfully, though... This is when Jesus makes a cameo moment, when he enters the scene, and when he returns to the rest of the disciples. And when this happens, how does the man react? He goes to Jesus, he kneels down before him, and he says these words, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. Mark 9, verse 22 reveals that the father also said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. Perhaps you recall it wasn't too long ago that we spoke of a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman. Jesus was away from the area of Galilee. He was up near Tyre and Sidon and far away from the general area of Jewish people. And here this desperate woman comes to Jesus because her daughter was also suffering because of demonic oppression. She also says something similar, have mercy on me. That's the thing with parents when we suffer, a lot of our suffering, the older we get, we look at our children, what they're experiencing, and it clings to our hearts. The man could say, have mercy on my son, but his concern is so wrapped up with his son, he says, have mercy on us. And will Jesus have compassion? Will he show mercy? Of course he will, because that's who Jesus is. Jesus cares for suffering people. He has profound sympathy for those who suffer. But even better, he also has the power and the willingness to help, right? And so he does. And the man's son is healed instantly. And at this point, we're going, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his power. Praise the Lord for his compassion. Praise the Lord for his kindness, right? But friends, keep in mind that the focus of Matthew is not actually on the healing, is it? But on what? 
the disciples. That's the main focus for Matthew. And he's focused in on what the disciples could not do, but that Jesus could. We're looking here at how the disciples lacked the necessary faith to perform the miracle. They lacked a trust and dependence on God. And there are three verses that highlight this as the main issue. Verse 17, verse 19, and verse 20. Let's look at these for a moment. First, look at verse 17. So Jesus heals, but before he heals, notice what he says. Faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Of course, the question that we have to ask as we read this is, who is Jesus talking about? Is it the disciples? Is it the crowd? Or is it both? Those are kind of the three only options. And while I think the answer is certainly both, I think Jesus is especially focused on the disciples since this statement comes on the heels of the father mentioning how the disciples couldn't heal his son. The crowd at times shows faithlessness. We know how fickle the crowds were that surrounded Jesus. They often came to him, of course, to see some sort of a show or to be fed or just to have a miracle performed. Uh, We know that there are plenty of superficial followers, but of course what we see here is that the disciples are mainly in view. Some find in this statement by Jesus a reference to the faithless and twisted generation of Israelites that it points to Israel's failings in the wilderness. In other words, the disciples in their unbelief are replicating a long line of God's people who have perverted his commands and refused to trust on him. And here's Jesus in the midst of this unbelief, continuing to bear with it. I dare say there is a a great element of concern here for Jesus. He knows his departure is coming soon. He's continued to mention this to the disciples. He's going to mention it again in a moment. Jesus has been with the disciples for two years, and they still can't get their act together. Nobody's more acquainted with Jesus' power than the disciples. They've been right there with Jesus throughout all the miracles. Not long ago, we looked at the feeding of another multitude. It's not that Jesus feeds 10, 15 to 20,000 people just once. He does it twice. Not to mention seeing the times when Jesus was able to have power and authority over nature itself. How he was just with a simple word able to calm the seas. Yet here they are, unable to perform a miracle, not depending on the Lord, not realizing his power. Later then, we're told that the disciples asked Jesus a question privately. They asked, why could we not cast it out? And I want you to just put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. Jesus, what happened? Like, did we say the wrong words? Did we make the wrong movements? Did we use the wrong technique? You have to understand how baffled they would have been because the fact is that they were able to perform miracles before. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you just simply need to uh, be reminded that in Matthew 10, Jesus gave the disciples power and authority to perform miracles and he sends them out. Remember to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and when they would be mistreated and opposed in one community, they were to go to another. They were able to cast out demons. They were able to heal illness. And all of a sudden now here they can't. They're baffled. Why? What happened? What did we do wrong? And then, of course, the answer comes from Jesus in verse 20, as he says to them, well, guys, it's because of your little faith. Oof. And there it is, again. 
Still, the disciples have little faith. Hopefully you've noticed this at this point, but this seems to be a recurring theme for the disciples, doesn't it? More specifically, Jesus says they have minuscule faith. I mean, when Jesus calmed the seas in Matthew 8, verse 26, they had little faith. When Peter walked on water and he began to sink, he had little faith in Matthew 14. When the disciples worry about having enough bread in Matthew 16, 7, they had little faith. And still here in this moment, what's happening? They still have little faith. Nothing's changed. Tell me, do you ever have moments when you think to yourself, man, I should be farther along by now. And you look at yourself and you're going, why don't I have greater maturity? Why don't I have greater faith? Why don't I have greater trust? Well, guess what? The disciples get it. And so does Jesus. And thankfully, what we see in him is how patient and gracious he is to tolerate distrust slowness of heart to believe. That said, one thing we must never do is use God's grace as a license to continue in our distrust and faithlessness. We are not to use the Lord's grace in vain because it is clear that God calls us to trust in him, to depend on him, and to rely on him for that which we lack and that which we need. And this clearly is something the disciples we're guilty of not doing. Now, you may have noticed this. Matthew does not tell us exactly why the disciples lacked faith, but I think the answer is somewhat obvious when you think about it. I, I do think that there's an element of presumptuousness. Again, they were given the power in Matthew 10. And I have to just wonder if the disciples didn't just assume that this power was a status. It was theirs forever and always. And it was always just going to be there, right? And perhaps for a time it was. Maybe it felt like it happened with their hearts on autopilot. I don't know. But now Jesus is certainly teaching his disciples that if ever they are to have power for ministry, then one thing they must do is depend on him for it. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, guys, you cannot just assume that you have power for today because of your past experiences with me. Friends, are you guilty of doing the same thing? I think probably each one of you can look back to a moment when your faith soared and you felt so close to God. Let me ask you today, where is your faith? Could you say the same thing? Or have you just looked back to those experiences in the past and said, hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm all right. Friends, I think this is what the disciples were doing. But Jesus rebukes that thought. And he gives the reminder that faith needs to be renewed and built upon all the time. And you say, but how do you do that? Well, certainly the example of Jesus, I think, is stunning when you think about it. Again, Jesus takes the disciples up on the mountain and we're told why they go there. They went there to pray. And then we also learn something else, that the disciples fall asleep while Jesus continues to pray. No wonder Jesus had the power Jesus is a prayer warrior. Jesus abides in his father minute by minute, moment by moment. He is ready for any challenge. Yes, I know that he's God. But he also displays what it is to trust in God as a man. And the disciples, they continue to fall asleep while Jesus continues to abide in the father. We also can be, I think, confident that this is so necessary to grow our faith because in Mark 9, verse 29, the parallel text to our current story, what does Jesus say there as the reason they couldn't drive out the demon? Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
And so, here's my question for you. Friends, do you underestimate your need for time with God? Do you underestimate what God does when you meet with him? When you speak with him, when you commune with him? By nature, I know I don't need to tell you this, but we are pretty good at self-sufficiency. We can ace that test every single day, can't we? We're just so used to depending on ourselves and our own resources and our own strength and our own ingenuity. We wake up in the morning and our default position is to think, well, what do I need to do? The question ought to be, what does God need to supply you with for the day ahead? Friends, if we are to be used of God, if we are to overcome sin, if we are to fight against temptation, if we are to oppose the works of Satan, what's required? Outrageous reliance upon God. That's where spiritual power comes from. And you all face different battles in your life. Whether it's that you battle with anxiety, whether it's that you battle with boldness, So many things. Every person struggles in different ways. And I think so often our kind of thinking is, well, what book can I read that will just get me over this? What's the pill? What's the book? What's the retreat? The answer, well, if there is a retreat, it's a retreat with Jesus. And I'm not trying to oversimplify things. I understand that there are problems in our lives that cannot just, won't just go away with prayer. But friends, guess what? There is no replacement for time with Jesus. Even if you are able to get a pill to help out any sort of personal ailment that you have, it still doesn't deal with the soul. God wants to sanctify you. He wants to conform you to Jesus Christ. He wants to change you from the inside out. Only he can sanctify you. Only he can conform you to Jesus Christ. No pill, no book can do that. Unless, of course, it's a book filled with the truth, right? The word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. That said, I want to issue a warning here. Lest you start to think that God will only use you if you have great faith, okay? That's not the point here. And how do we know this? Because the picture that Jesus uses here of faith is having faith the size of a mustard seed. So Jesus says to the disciples, guys, if you had faith, even just the faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd be able to move mountains. If you're not acquainted with mustard, mustard is very, very small. In fact, it's so small that if you ever see it like, you know, in, the, in a truck being hauled somewhere, it's almost like liquid, the way it just levels out or while it's being poured in a bin. It's the smallest, among the smallest seeds that there is. Even in our area, we understand the illustration So, on the one hand, though the disciples can do nothing with no faith, the encouragement is this, that nothing will be impossible if they have even the smallest conceivable amount of faith. Jesus says, even with faith the size of a mustard seed, the possibilities are limitless, but not because the faith, per se. Why? Because, of course, who the faith is in. God takes our faith. God uses faith. And God makes all things possible. That said, we also understand this. Faith is not the power to do anything you want. Faith submits and surrenders to God and his purposes and his plans. That's true faith. So first, the disciples discover the poverty of their faith. And what's the second thing they discover? Secondly, they discover the persistence of their Savior. 
the persistence of their Savior. Notice the scenery change. In verse 22, we notice how Jesus and the disciples move from the base of the mountain back to Galilee. And then Jesus says this, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, if you're keeping track, you will notice that this is the second time that Jesus mentions his death. And of course, when was the first? It happened two Sundays ago when we looked at how Peter rebukes Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. We read from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then this is when Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, far be it from you, Lord, that this should ever happen. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so we knew from that moment that Peter was struggling to accept the idea of going to the idea of Jesus going to the cross. And this we understand is because the general idea of a Messiah was that he would be a political savior, that he would be set upon a throne and that he would trample on the enemies of Israel And that's how the kingdom would be ushered in. But Jesus' first coming was not in power like they suspected, but he came as a suffering servant. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand that, yes, there's salvation coming. And I, as the Messiah, am here. But the salvation that you require most and and above everything else is not a political redemption, but a spiritual one. And so he's trying to get these guys to understand the necessity that he suffer and be betrayed and be resurrected. But we know that Peter was not the only person who was struggling with the idea of Jesus going to the cross. And how do we know this? Because Matthew says that in this moment, all of the disciples were greatly distressed. Another way to say it is that they were grieved exceedingly or exceedingly sorrowful. The disciples are not fighting the idea of Christ's death at this point, it doesn't seem, but they still are not liking it. And for Peter, James, and John, I guess I can only wonder if they needed to hear this, especially because maybe in light of what they just experienced, they're thinking maybe there is another way. Jesus just revealed his power. He revealed his might. Maybe he doesn't need to go to the cross after all, but here Jesus is reminding them that, no, it absolutely must happen. And why? Well, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but there were two serious consequences if Jesus didn't go to the cross. First, of course, it would make God out to be a liar because the scripture must be fulfilled, and he has said time and time again, that the Messiah would come and what he would face and what he would experience. But secondly, what else? Secondly, even worse, there'd be no hope for any of us to be saved since through the cross, God becomes both just and also the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ, right? There's only two ways, theoretically, to have eternal life. The first is that you can live a perfect life. Now, obviously, I said it's theoretical because none of us can live a perfect life. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if that's not a possibility, what's the other one? Well, then you have to have someone who lives a perfect life for you and ultimately receive the punishment of God on your behalf. Jesus needed to go to the cross or each one of us would have suffered under the wrath of God for sin. And I think Paul brings both of these together so well in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, it's just another way for Paul to say, like, it was spoken that this was happened. God said that this was happened. It had to happen to fulfill his word. 
Later on, he'll say when he gets to verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's no hope without the cross. No hope without a resurrected Savior. The promises and the purposes of God are vindicated by Jesus fulfilling the scripture by being rejected, dying, and coming back to life. And so Jesus here is insisting to the disciples that he will still go to the cross. So first, we see the disciples discover the poverty of their faith. Second, they discover the persistence of their Savior. And now what's the next discovery they make? Third, they discover the privileges of their adoption. They discover the privileges of their adoption. So we started at the base of the mountain in our first point. We then see the disciples go with Jesus to Galilee in our second point. And now when we come to our third point, there's another change in location. They now find themselves in Capernaum, which, as you might remember, is actually the home base of operations for the Galilean ministry. And this is where Peter's home is. And as soon as they get there, what happens? Well, Peter is approached by two tax collectors. However, uh, just know that these are not your normal tax collectors. These aren't tax collectors like Matthew. These are not Roman tax collectors. Rather, these are Jewish representatives of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And they ask Peter this question. They say, does your teacher not pay the tax? Or as some prefer, uh, does your teacher, your teacher pays the tax, doesn't he? Because it, it, it appears that they assumed that Jesus did pay the tax. And I wouldn't say this is important, just interesting, really, uh, that ordained rabbis were exempt from the tax. Jesus is not a formally recognized by the religious establishment, so it was expected that he would pay the tax. And this tax, for all practical purposes, was the equivalent of two days' wages, which was to be paid by Jewish males over 20 years of age for the support and upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so it's a temple tax. They've got to like, pay for some masonry work or some bricks, maybe some new holy hardware. They've got the money to do it. In response to this question, then, does your teacher pay the tax? What's Peter say? Well, he says, yes, my teacher pays the tax. Interesting. He didn't even need to go talk to Jesus to give the answer. He, he just knew where Jesus stood on this tax. And he goes inside, presumably, to grab the payment. But before he returns, what happens? Jesus uses this moment to provide a little bit of a lesson to Peter. Again, connecting it to the privileges that he has as a child of God. Look at verse 25. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So simple illustration. Uh, kings do not tax their own family members. Just think of it as a parent like this. How many of your kids pay you rent for the room that they sleep in? Not many of you. How many of you would take rent payment? <laughs> Kings do not collect from their own family. You do not collect rent from your own children. Jesus does not tax his own followers. And I want you to think about the argument, right? Jesus is one who owns the temple. Everything in the temple points to him. Everything that took place in the temple was to highlight Israel's need for an ultimate redeemer. But then, this is what Jesus says to Peter. However, verse 27, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, honestly, in terms of odd stories in the Gospels, uh, this might be at the top of the list. 
Somebody seems to be short on some cash. They don't go to the bank. They go to the water. They find it in a fish's mouth. It's a really peculiar story, right? So what are we to take from this? Two things I want to emphasize. Of course, first is Peter's relationship with God. The second, though, has to do with Jesus' desire to avoid certain offenses. And I think this also leads to providing an example for how God's people should live in light of the privileges that they have. First, again, just think about the temple, right? Now, the fact is, Jesus is far greater than the temple. In fact, he's even said this much in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Perhaps you recall when Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders, he and the disciples are walking through uh, a field and they're plucking heads off of the grain and they're eating them. And it was on the Sabbath day and the religious leaders come up and say, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath because they saw that as some form of work that they were doing. They had all these rules, right? And arguing against their logic, uh, Jesus ultimately uh, makes plenty of points, some of them being that actually uh, it's perfectly appropriate because David himself took bread that was designated just for priests to eat when he was in a time of need. And certainly Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is so great, he even says, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He compares himself to the temple and Of course, this would have been a shot straight at the Jews, right? Because of their view of the temple. I mean, they saw the temple as perhaps the most important part of their religion. And we understand why. It was that special place where God would meet with his people. That special place where they were welcomed into his presence. Where they saw him manifested among themselves. That the, in fact, the temple was so important, sometimes if people really wanted to prove a point that they were reliable or trustworthy or they promised the payment, they'd make it. They'd swear by the temple. They wouldn't swear by their mother's grave. They'd swear by the temple. They didn't think they could swear by anything higher than the temple. Jesus says that he's higher, he's greater than the temple. And again... Why? Because the temple all pointed to him. We're told this, that in Hebrews 7, that Jesus would come and he would essentially render all that took place in the temple obsolete. Hebrews 7, verse 27, said of Jesus that he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. No longer with Jesus' sacrifice would there be a need for the blood of bulls and of goats. The blood of Jesus atones for all sin, past, present, and future for all of God's people who trust in him for salvation. And yet, Jesus still tells Peter to pay the tax. Why? We're told to avoid what we might call unnecessary offense. Unnecessary offense. Now, I want you to think about this. Now, as you know, Jesus is a controversial figure, right? I mean, he certainly doesn't seem to mind stepping on a few toes. Regularly, he says a lot of things that offended people, particularly the religious leaders. However, on this particular occasion, what does he do? He chooses of his own accord to submit to and adhere to certain customs, though not obligated to do so. Why? Let's just imagine what would have happened if Jesus didn't pay the tax. What do you think would have been the result? What would people have assumed about Jesus? Well, if you, again, understand a Jewish person's view of the temple, there's no way that they would have accepted Jesus' own claims to be a Jewish Messiah. Not what he is standing against, the most sacred and revered place that there was among the Jewish people. What do you mean you're a Jewish Messiah? You don't, you don't even respect our temple. There's nothing Jewish about you. All you want to do is undermine or overthrow everything that we've ever believed. It would have seen as, been seen as highly disrespectful. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, describes the impact like this. He said it would increase people's prejudice against Jesus and his doctrine and alienate their affections from him, and therefore he resolves to pay it. <laughs> I mean, just think of all the things Jesus could have said, though. 
He could have said, well, no, I'm not paying this because I'm greater than the temple. He also could have said, well, there's no way I'm paying that tax because I know what goes on at the temple. There's nothing but a den of thieves at the temple, the way they extort and take advantage of people. If you can't comprehend what Jesus is doing here, though, I'd, I'd, I'd just like you to simply consider a statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, because I think Paul's doing the same thing that Jesus exampled here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Keep in mind how Paul approached ministry. When he was with the Jews, he lived like a Jew. When he was with the Gentiles, he lived like a Gentile. He didn't live like a pagan when he was with the pagans, though. Let's be clear about that. So he would eat whatever was put before him, whether with the Jews or the Gentiles. He would drink what they drank. He would do what they did as long, and this is key, as long as it wasn't sinful and as long as it didn't contradict the message of the gospel. Paul even goes so far as to say that he made himself a slave or a servant of other people. In other words, this was Paul's heart. He just wanted to be as accommodating as possible in order to win more people to Jesus. I am not arguing here for cultural relativism, but I think for cultural relevance. I think that's where Paul stands And Jesus does the same thing. Think about it. Jesus was born into a Jewish family. He celebrated Jewish holidays. He attended and participated in Jewish weddings. And there would be times when he would stand against the popular ideas and mainstream thought of his days. But when he could and where he could, he tried to avoid offense. And friends, I think that that's an incredibly important lesson for us as Christians. Listen, you have... Various social circles that you spend your time in. You have families that you're with. You have traditions and customs that you're born into. And I think the question that we need to regularly be asking ourselves is, how is it that I can be most peaceable in my relationships in order to have an opportunity to present Christ As kind of a check on how you're doing at this, here's a question you can ask yourself. If I were to speak to most of your friends or those who you work most closely with, and if I were to ask them about the kind of things that you enjoy, what would be their answer? They'd be at a loss for words. Like, I don't know a single thing that that person enjoys. But I can tell you what they're against. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we do such a great job as Christians letting the whole world knowing what we're against that they never know what we're for. Again, there's a time to take a stand for truth. There's a time to refute error. There's a time to correct and take captive thoughts to the word of God. But are you seeking to build bridges wherever you can? Or are you only concerned with burning them up and you have no concern for whether you do so? And I think this is important, of course, when it comes to our relationships with unbelievers. But I also think it's important in our interactions with other Christians, too. I think you see this principle come through with Paul. You say in places like Romans 14, lots of division in that Roman church. Jews and Gentiles were struggling to get along. Paul essentially writes Romans as a unification letter. Kind of come to Jesus moment. As he gets towards the end of this letter, he encourages them to care for their brothers in a variety of ways. In verse in Romans 14, verse 15, or chapter 14, verse 15, it says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
Essentially, if you look at this text, you could notice a, a number of ways, again, that Paul is just saying, hey, wherever you can, meet your brother where they're at. If they have a weak conscience, if they're kind of gripped by these certain things, if they think this is bad, this is good, this is unclean, this is clean, maybe in love with the privileges that you have in Christ, try and meet them where they're at and try not to do anything that would cause them to stumble and help build them up in love. And friends, this is the reason that God gives us such wonderful privileges that we would use them to serve those around us. We have freedom in Christ, but we will never honor Christ if we look at the status we have with God as his children and we go, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. And in fact, that actually points out that the opposite is probably true of you. You're not actually a child of God, if that's your thinking. Because a child of God, again, never uses the grace of God as a license to sin or to insist on their own preferences, but to delight themselves in God and to serve those around them. Well, friends, we have covered a whole lot of ground today, haven't we? But I hope that you're encouraged Because the bottom line is this, God desires to use you as you live life in the valley. And I don't know what your valley looks like, but I know this, that as you turn to the Lord in your valley, as you depend on him, as you become increasingly grateful for a savior who insisted on going to the cross, as you use the freedom and privileges he has given you to serve those around you, he will use you in profound ways. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.